Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week, my guest will be Alex Harvey, a forester and landowner advocate from coastal Mississippi. Uh, this brother was a joy to talk to. Uh, he's a wealth of information about the history of black hunters and land ownership in these southern United States. Uh, as a matter of fact, so much so that we bounced around and talked about quite a few topics and went down quite a few different rabbit holes. But I'm all right with that. Uh, I enjoy the fact that we had so much to talk about, and I'm looking forward to having him back on at a future time to continue some of these conversations that we initiated on this episode. I'm actually in a hotel in Sacramento, California, on my way to the airport to get back to Arkansas and finish out my waterfowl season. So I'm going to pack up and get on the road and leave you to enjoy this episode of the podcast with Alex Harvey. Thanks so much. We're sitting here at the the big church table here at Black Duck Revival, uh, a table made by my good friend Michael Dillon. It was formerly a apple cider vinegar vat from northwest Arkansas. We're sitting on the old church pews, uh, back from when this was the Heartline Christian Fellowship Church, and I'm joined by Alex Harvey, uh, Alex and his brother Al. Uh, stopped by for a few hours, have some gumbo and chat uh, on their way to Nebraska for a mule deer hunt. Uh, Alex is a forester from Mississippi. He's a landowner advocate, biologist, conservationist, host of other things. But I think he just uh, most aptly described himself to me as a uh, an advocate for landowners. Uh, we'll talk some about how that plays out in his professional life and then some of his passion projects as well, specifically dealing with Ayers land. But, uh, yeah, Alex and I have kind of been internet friends for a couple of years. I think we did a zoom panel or something, maybe right when COVID started mm -hmm. and, uh, just kind of stayed in touch. Uh, I guess he's a board member of HOC hunters of color founded by my friends, Lydia and Jimmy up in Oregon who uh, will be down here shortly to do some speckle belly goose hunting. But, uh, Alex, man, thanks for coming by. I'm excited that we finally got to meet in person. Yeah, yeah, man, same same here, brother. It's been, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've wanted to get here and to make your acquaintance and, uh, you know, to sit in the church and to, to worship in terms of, uh, you know, conversation, right? about uh everything you do and I do and and how uh how we both look to make a uh an impact right with with all of that so yep 
Definitely, man. Uh, I'll be honest with you, man. You're you're the first black forester I've ever met. Uh, and then in our conversations, you know, I've, I've come to find out that there's actually a lot. A lot, yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's just like kind of a hole in my knowledge and experience. Mm-hmm. But, uh, man, you know, this is kind of a big question, but, you know, mm-hmm. give me a – Give me a somewhat succinct kind of version of what you're doing now, how Uh you got to there. We've talked a lot about like familial histories, uh, these, you know, these uh, generations Mm -hmm. of uh, black relationship with the land and the South. uh, And you're very much coming out of. Mm-hmm. of that kind of continuum and right. i think it's definitely led you to where you, what you're yes. doing now and yep. and your ideas about things so uh, yeah. yeah just talk about that a little bit um so yeah uh, i guess you know where to begin uh that conversation is um now i'm currently a consulting forester wildlife biologist and i um I got into this, um, you know, kind of fortuitously. You know, I have to first start by saying, um, you know, I, we, my brother and I, we grew up, you know, on a farm and cattle ranch in central Mississippi. And between Hines County, which is where the state's capital is located, and Holmes County, which is where our parents uh, went as student teachers in the late 60s and never left. And so... Um, you know, we kind of grew up between both of those places, and, you know, we've always had a very close relationship uh, with land itself, and, um, you know, it, it just, it sort of um, always has been the backdrop for, for life as I know it, right, and, um, you know, I I, um, I decided that I wanted to get a degree, you know, I was I think I was like ninth or 10th grade, my parents started asking, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I decided that I wanted to be one of those guys that, quote, unquote, rode around the green trucks, right? And that was the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fishes, and Parks. And so um, I had no idea what it took to become one of those guys. I, um, I'd i actually heard some, some stuff in the news around that time where that agency was looking to start hiring more African Americans to come and work for them, and so you know I was in high school still, and um, you know I just I just chartered a course that I you know that's what I want to aspire to do, and I went off uh, to uh, well fir- first off my my parents were uh, both a product of historically black colleges in Mississippi, the Jackson State University. And uh, my dad was sort of always adamant that that's where I would go to school. So I did that. It just kind of wasn't, you know, it sort of wasn't for me because I really wanted this forestry thing. And so I inevitably made my way to to uh, to Mississippi State after attending both Jackson State and Alcorn State. And, um, you know, I uh, I went off after college. I worked for the U.S. Forest Service for a time. Um, I worked for a couple of state agencies and um, I wanted, I was working with the Forest Service in Northwestern Pennsylvania and I really wanted to get back home. My mom was kind of getting older and having some health issues and I so I just had to sort of find out how I could make that work and um, 
came back to the South, to Mississippi, on a temporary sort of thing, and decided that no matter what, I was not leaving again. And, uh, you know, the Forest Service called one day and said, hey, it's time for you to go back to Pennsylvania. And I was like, yeah, no. (laughs) Which actually was a very fateful decision because um, I left the Forest Service. Uh, Everything was cool. I just decided I wanted to do something else. And um, I just kind of piddled around for a while. And um, I heard about this work, um, working with African-American forest landowners, this sort of new thing that was happening um, uh, with with these nonprofit organizations. And I, I just said, you know, I'm they're looking for a forester. I'm going to apply. And I did. I got the job and I worked um, with a bunch of farmers and, and landowners for about three and a half years. And that was sort of, you know, kind of the framework, man, that I would build the rest of my life on, at least until this point where, um, you know, I, I got to connect with a lot of people that looked like my parents and grandparents. And, you know, these, you know, these were people who had a very, very hearty relationship with the land that they had grown up on and lived on their entire lives. And, you know, and I saw a lot of similarities between my own story and this issue of heirs property, which is so prevalent in African-American families across the South and is actually a really huge issue when you talk about um, conservation and, um, you know, the the positive habitat things that we could do across the landscape um, All right, hold on, hold on one second here. So I want to put a pin in that for just a second. Mm-hmm. I actually want to, I want to go back a little bit. So, uh, explain what a forester does. Okay, sure. Explain if you would. You know, when you talk about land management, mm-hmm. what that means, and then we can. I think that'll lead us into the heirs property conversation yeah 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 so foresters do a lot of different things man i mean um generally i think what most people see is that we manage the forest or we sort of uh protect the forest but um i mean we're so we're talking about stuff like you know uh uh, prescriptive thinning of trees mm -hmm. removal of invasives uh right I mean, I used to prescribe burning. I used to do um, prescribe burning a little bit. Uh, timber inventories, timber sales, t- you know, timber management, if you will, you know, all these sort of uh, um, very technical things when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, the health of a forest or the long term uh, well being of a forest, right? That's but, it's, of, but it's all kind of like very. Uh, the implementation of it is mm-hmm. very kind of like rudimentary. Right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like yeah. when I was, when, when we were burning timber, I mean, it was like me and a couple other guys mm-hmm. on four wheelers with drip torches mm-hmm. and we'd torch yeah. the downwind side. Yeah. You know, we'd have like a big bulldozer line mm-hmm. cut around something. We'd torch the downwind side and burn that back 20 or 30 yards. Right. right? And then this dude in this little erector set, uh, helicopter <laughs> Drop would, a couple of balls. he would start dropping right. those ping pong yeah. balls that run fire just like torching the yeah. whole thing yeah. and then we just rode the edges breathing smoke and <laughs> putting out fires when they jumped the lines <laughs> right. or like running a chainsaw right. or hacking and squirting just mm-hmm. like scarring mm-hmm. up a tree yeah. like a cedar or something with a hatchet and then spraying mm-hmm. uh 
herbicide in it. So, uh, so you're like you're kind of the person like that's that's creating these these uh, plans that need to be implemented, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, I mean, have you done a bunch of like burning and oh my gosh, timber yeah. I, I still do a lot of that today, even though you know I'm sort of uh, yeah, I'm more of kind of you know management level type, you know. Mm-hmm. But but I do, I definitely love to get my hands dirty, man. I can't do too much time behind anybody's computer, and you know, in inside, I'm an outside type of person, and so I um I make it a I make it a point to. Uh, to inject myself in, in all of that as much as I can, right? So prescribed burning is something I I am very passionate about doing and I love to do because it is the really important, um, necessary habitat work that that animals need, right, that wildlife needs. And so um, to me, it's it's all sort of this. So when you think about this, you, know, you think about a forest and forests in the South, as well as forests in many, 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 many other places, evolved with fire, right? And when there is fire, routinely, we tend to have healthier forests. Um, and so the, the, uh, the act of getting into the, um, um, the, the real sort of, uh, Hmm, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. You know, I um I love to take part in a forest being healthy for many, many years to come. And as long as I'm uh getting rid of invasive species or doing prescribed burning or you know, uh, marking a, a, a forested stand for uh, for thinning uh, or, you know, all of those sorts of things, um, then I am, you know, I can really see and feel um, in a very real way the work that I am helping to contribute to um, having healthy forests for a long time to come. And so... And so and- so, like having healthy forests, what we're talking about too is, so in your mind, is a healthy forest a? Are you trying to create forests that look like they did, you know, pre-European colonization as much as possible? Yeah. So, like in Arkansas, we have like the predominant pine species now is the loblolly, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. fast growing. I think it's got like a fifteen-year turnover or something. Right. A little bit more than that, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, man, I, I, yeah. I know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> there right? you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, as opposed to like the native pine, right. that's uh, and now I'm blanking on what the native pine. Well, loblolly was probably pretty native here too, but yeah. Uh, the the thing is, we, uh, you know, we plant them for commer- you know, for timber harvest, mm-hmm. right? Um, but but it has, you know, loblolly has always been native in one way or another. Uh, to the landscape of the American What Southeast. is it? The, but am, am I incorrect in that? Isn't I thought Arkansas was a pr- predominantly a different species of, of pine before. Um, it was like a slower growing. Uh, it's this pine. It's the pine that this. Is these, it these, longleaf? Yes, longleaf. Long yeah. Okay, yeah, longleaf pines. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I did some work down towards Monticello mm-hmm. and it was these kind of pine savanna type mm-hmm, situations. Mm-hmm. And 
and we were doing invasive uh, removal. Mm-hmm. And I remember they had these these big tall pine trees that yeah. were like rung with metal. Yeah. yeah. And it's because there was it was like a stand where mm-hmm. there were caucated woodpeckers. Mm-hmm. It's like this very rare species. Red caucated woodpecker. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So like we see lots of pileated. Right. And, uh, was it mm-hmm. pileated and like redhead woodpecker? Yeah. And, yeah. But yeah. So the caucated is like. Is it endangered officially? Um, it was at one time. I don't think it is currently. I'd have to look and see. I don't. Uh, yeah, I tend to not keep up. It's with on that. that. It's on that. Con- yeah, it's, concern it's, thing. Uh, it's been threatened or concerned here most recently in most states. But there's been a there's been a uh, an effort on the part of a lot of people to ensure that its habitat and that the bird species is in good health across yeah. the southeast. Yeah. And and so the reason I'm kind of focusing on this. It's it's not just uh, to interject my little bits of knowledge. It's mm-hmm. because uh, you know we're talking about land stewardship mm-hmm. and this lineage of land stewardship in mm-hmm. the southeast, mm-hmm. black agrarian yes. connection to that, yes. and how you're entering that equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of what I okay. I, I want folks to have like kind of a general understanding of some of what you're doing, right? And then. I think that uh, we can kind of thread that tapestry together a little bit more to okay. see like where we came from and where what yeah. you're doing and how you're kind of pushing it forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so this narrative of African American land ownership in the American South is very complicated, and part of that is, you know, history that is unfortunate and very complicated, and. Um, and what I'm doing today is literally trying to undo as much of that as I possibly can. Okay. I'm trying to help families realize, um, that their land provides opportunities for long-term wealth for future generations. And, um, that it also provides a place for families to to reconnect and to have a sense of grounding that is important to absolutely all humans on this planet, but particularly when you talk about um, African Americans in the rural South that have had such a complicated relationship with the landscape that mm-hmm. we know here, of here. So, um, so I'm just really trying to do, I suppose, in in a very minute way um, as much as I can in terms of um, carrying the mantle of what a forester does in terms of um, uh, leaving a place a little bit better than you found it. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I, I suppose, I mean, you know, I, I guess a lot of what I'm doing is, and and I and I always pause because people so easily misunderstand you, unfortunately, in, in today's time. But a lot of work that I I'm trying to do is, I guess, social justice work, where um, you know a, a lot of these uh, families, landowners, and and whatnot. Uh, left the rural south and we you know we can look at 
the the narrative of the great migration mm-hmm. right out of the american south to the the, the uh, northern centers and the midwest and the, the far west of, you know united states and so um right so hey so we're talking about stuff that we both are pretty intimately familiar yeah, with but yeah let's just give a little bit of a primer to that you know the great migration is probably over the span of 30 years or so you know beginning in the early 1900s and running uh you know, probably even through World War II, mm. but essentially you're talking about black people who up until that point, black people in America had very much been concentrated in the mm-hmm. South, mm-hmm. Uh, in rural areas. Right. That's a direct, uh, that's a direct uh, legacy of enslavement. Mm-hmm. And uh, because you know, because like the, the racialized violence of like the twenties mm-hmm. was exactly. like some of like the most brutal stuff that mm-hmm. uh, the American South had ever seen, like even more brutal in some cases than slavery, because in slavery you had an entire system to maintain that power structure. Right. It was in flux in the twenties. And so you, that's like the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and stuff. Anyway, what you're saying, what we're talking about is black people and families leaving Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, and going to like, and this is what happened to my family: mm-hmm. St. Louis, mm-hmm. Indianapolis, mm-hmm. Chicago. Mm-hmm. If folks were coming from, and they were following the railroads, right? And if folks were coming like from uh, further east, if they were coming from the Carolinas, uh, Florida, mm-hmm. Alabama, you know, that's how you yeah. start getting these black populations, large black populations of the northern centers of mm-hmm. Baltimore, right. and New York, and right. stuff. And then, uh, like. Black families that moved to the West Coast, California, uh, they're coming pretty much out of Louisiana, Texas, Texas and right. Arkansas yeah. because the yeah. railroads went that way. Right. So you've got this great migration and you have this kind of strange flux of a people who are almost entirely Southern and entirely rural. And they're moving mm-hmm. into places, one, where they can escape some of this violence, but also... Uh, have access to jobs and opportunities. Yeah, that yeah. that don't require, yeah. uh, like, uh, j- you know, just working class jobs. So you know, going from like a, a working in a farm to working in a factory. Like right. it didn't take a tremendous amount of education, but you could support a family, get an automobile. You know, start to move up. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's the Great Migration. Great, great. Yeah. Uh, wonderful uh, descriptive narrative there. So yeah. So, um, so, you know, for, uh, a time after, uh, reconstructions, African-Americans were estimated to own somewhere as around 15 million acres. And today, mostly in the South, mostly in the South, right. Mostly in the South. And today it's, uh, it's less than 2 million. And, um, there are, are a number of factors that contributed to that largely, but uh, that that violence that you mentioned, because there was a lot of political violence during around the period of Reconstruction, and um, you know a lot of people f- fled as as a result of that, and um, there was a lot of land left behind, and consequently, there's been a lot of uh, lands left without opportunities. Um, for conservation to take place. And I am a person who is very passionate about conservation because I, I grew up a hunter. And um, I grew up somebody who just 
love to, you know, go out and see wildlife, right? And so um, a, a really huge part of what I'm trying to do today is just uh, trying to make a contribution in this sort of, I suppose a, a lot of people will see it as a unique way, um, but I, I don't necessarily see it as that because this is what um, consulting foresters, meaning people who work privately within communities all across the United States, have done for at least 100 years. But the reality is that um, within African-American communities and, you know, and, and families and so forth, um, there is still a lot of lack of information in terms of what is a forester. Okay, what is a consulting forester? And what, what do they do differently than, say, somebody who works for the state agency or somebody who works for the federal agency? And, you know, how can they help me? How can I use this land to create more wildlife habitat and have a hunting lease and have, you know, you know all these sort of uh, really important opportunities um, that that matter to all of us, not just to a specific community, but, you know, having a healthy forested landscape is important to an entire community, to an entire state, to an entire region, right? And so, um, you know, I, I'm just in many ways trying to make my impact one acre at a time you know um I'm now, are we dealing so are you dealing with folks that have uh like huge swaths of land are we talking hundreds and thousands of acres are we talking about people that have you know a 40 acre plot mm -hmm. that's divided between 10 relatives right. it, it varies it varies i, I do have uh I do have clients that have a, a thousand acres and some more than that. And I do have some that are uh, 15 or 20 acres here and there. And when you get into this complicated legal issue of heirs property, now let me, let me try to explain this. Please. What, what happens is someone perhaps uh, three generations ago passed away and they didn't leave a will. And so that leaves property in this sort of very complicated legal limbo of who actually owns it. And so now, you know, envision that you've had three or four generations of people who have also successively passed away and also did not leave a will. So today you may have for, for instance, 30 acres, you may have 70 people who have some rightful claim to this property mm. or own some share of it, right? And uh, Because it went from, like, great-grandma and grandpa to their kids and then their kids exactly. and then their kids. Exactly. And so um, it makes it, it makes it, you know, very complicated to implement conservation on an acreage like that because – um, you know, let, let's be honest, it, you know, my brother's sitting over there and I can tell you <laughs> that we pretty much don't agree on a lot of different stuff mm -hmm. and we're two people, but if you got 20, sure, it's going to make it much more complicated. Right. And, um, do you like all those people have to sign off? To yeah. They have to all be an agreeable part of the direction of where that property goes. Yeah. And, you know, things get really complicated real fast and, um, you know, the thing the thing that I am most hopeful about and makes me really excited is, you know, the uh, the recognition on the part of families uh, 
that conservation is a viable tool to help them maintain control of their lands and to forge a future ahead for generations to come. What does that mean specifically? So that means that um, managing that land in terms of a working forest or in terms of healthy wildlife habitat um, or, you know, a, a farm that, you know, a cattle farm that has some sort of mix of those things, uh, of a healthy, you know, woodlot or something of that nature. I mean, again, man, you know, one acre at a time, we start to do something and create a, a, a sort of mosaic across the landscape that uh, helps improve animal, you know, wildlife populations. And so, or at least their habitat, rather. And so I, I um, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful because um, in a way you can sort of see this revival right Um, you see this sort of resurgence of um, opportunities that many african-american families have felt that they didn't necessarily or previous generations didn't have access to um, the opportunities to help um, manage their farms, uh, or, you know, you know, they could, uh, you know, and this is, this of course is long gone as of now, but in the past, um, you know, African-American families, and this is, this is, of course is, is very well documented, but African-American families were discriminated against in terms of one very key pivotal thing, and that was uh, working with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and getting funds to improve their farms and and uh, you know and their their woodlots and all this sort of thing. Well, um, you know that work that I did to sort of bring me to today was um, instrumental in partnering with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to help um, sort of uh, address this. Uh, historical perspective that has that has you know uh, been dismantled in many ways right and so where there may have been you know discriminatory things that took place um, many years ago things have largely changed and so um, a lot of the work that I did was helping to highlight what those changes look like and where the opportunities were and um you know the the biggest barrier became the issue of heirs property and explaining to landowners hey without this uh you know if if you're able to resolve this complicated legal situation here here are opportunities that you can take part in with the u.s department of agriculture and you see this narrative on the part of families who say um you know my my granddad he he couldn't have done that or he didn't get that opportunity that we now have right and and that is i can't even tell you like how much that energizes me you know like um when when that light bulb goes off and people are sort of realizing that they can very much continue 
what was the hope of families and family members generations prior. So when they realize that they can now um, leave a lasting legacy that corrects, that uh, connects rather directly to the hopes of, you know, previous generations. I mean, that's, that's a pretty powerful thing, you know? And, um, and I hope that makes sense. Is that, is that, uh, no, no, I get yeah, it, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that, that is, uh, that's just work that energizes me, man. I, I you know, I'm just a guy who, who grew up on a farm and, you know, who, who loved it and grew up hunting and fishing and all these other things. And, um, I wanted to get a forestry degree because I just wanted to be outside all the time. Yeah. And I had no idea at that time that, um, you know, the, the place where I find myself now is a result of even the lived experiences that I had, you know, where my own family have issues with this heirs property thing. And, and and to sort of witness firsthand, you know, how that has uh, how that's created so much chaos, you know, and, you know, so, it, you know, it's kind of a real sort of come, you know, full circle sort of thing that that has happened. And, um, you know, I'm 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 really uh, I'm energized just to be able to, you know try and sort of make make a positive contribution in some way but in the midst of it i get to get my hands dirty and i get to play outside and i get to you know (laughs) um you know make management level recommendations and oversee those things and follow through with those things and um and i try to get in as much hunting as i as i can where i can (laughs) in the middle of it perfect segue man yeah because some of the something that we've talked about before uh, just in our own private conversations is, and I think a lot of folks, I, I just think it's a subject that's worth, worth broaching is, is some of these, you know, like traditional black, like, I don't know what you call them, outdoors activities, mm-hmm. uh, methods and manners of hunting. And so, I think a lot of folks, I think black people aren't just aren't as visible Mm -hmm. specifically on public land. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think there's, you know, especially in the South, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of black folks have this kind of living memory. And by that, I mean, you know, you've a story from your, about your Mm -hmm. grandma's Mm -hmm. brother or something back in the day where like violence was perpetrated against him in these, Right. Rural wild places. Right. So there's kind of like a suspicion there mm-hmm. uh, or they've just been told their whole life it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, simultaneously, now you, you have that, you know, you have the results of people that have, you know, maybe become more urbanized and uh, and and they just have less of a, you know, they're a generation or two removed from mm-hmm. uh these rural and wild places like my dad, when he was growing up, you know, my dad grew up, uh, my dad was born in the forties. So my dad grew up during the summers. He would go back to Mississippi mm-hmm. and like stay with his great aunt. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially like his grandmother. 
And so he had that relationship, you know. But right. you get, like, some kid born. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't even know my family was from Arkansas until after I moved back down here to go to college. I just ended wow. up in Arkansas, right? Wow. Okay. So you've got that kind of disconnect. You've got that barrier to entry is a term we hear a lot. But you have that all rolling around with an unbroken chain mm-hmm. of of black hunters and mm-hmm. black, you know, specifically like houndsmen mm-hmm. and bird hunters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I think of black hunters, I think of the South. Mm-hmm. I think deer hunting. Mm-hmm. I think uh, fishing, you know, and I'd say I'd say fishing. I'd say fishing for panfish mm-hmm. and catfish, uh, rough fish, you know, so like buffalo mm-hmm. is what I'm thinking mm-hmm. specifically. Uh, and I'm thinking – Small game, so I'm I'm thinking about squirrel hunting. I'm thinking about uh, you know raccoons. I'm thinking about quail right. specifically, especially if we get further east from where we're at now, where you have those mm-hmm. traditions of like you know different habitat, those big pl- pine plantations and stuff. So this is stuff that you and your brother and your family like you had a you were just the latest generation that was mm-hmm. continuing those practices right. in a place where your family and people that looked like you had been doing it for hundreds of years. Yeah, so 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 you just said something that, and I, I've been sitting here thinking just a second ago, you said when you think of black hunters. So the thing for me is when I think of hunters, period, I mean, <laughs> for a, a huge chunk of my life, I I I lived in, you know, largely african-american communities where that that's pretty much the only people that were there yeah. right and so you know when i think of outdoors people um you think of black people i think of black people yeah because that that is that's largely been my experience right and so that's that's kind of you know that's a great uh that's a great way to expound on the point that i'm making is that you you grew up with it so normalized mm-hmm. that your idea of an outdoorsman or a woodsman yeah. Yeah. is a black, yes, you know, yes, of a course. black man, right? Yeah. Whereas I think or woman, let's say woman too. <laughs> sure. And yeah. there, look, there is a right. huge tradition, especially with black women in the South, mm-hmm. of herbalism. Yes, of course. And uh, yeah. and that ties in with uh, yeah. you know lack of access to medical care, yes. midwifery, yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not enough of an expert to really delve into that, but th- I mean, these are deeply rooted beliefs. Mm-hmm. And, and Our great grandmother was, a, was an herbalist, um, to my understanding. I've, I've always been told, um, and that's everything from like ginseng to like oh red man. clay. Like, you like, know? oh my gosh, our family supposedly am I right? They used to eat red clay or something like that. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I, man, I saw, yeah. I, I saw a 60 minutes uh-huh. thing. Like when yeah. I was a kid yeah, man. about, and that being the, th- and we're talking about like red play and it's like Mississippi, Alabama. Yeah. Oh my gosh. My mom, I, I wish my mom was sitting here because she could go on and on about this red clay thing. Her family, I don't, I, I've just heard that they ate clay. I don't know the specifics yeah. and about it. It's supposed to be like a way to, it was very, to get minerals yeah. it was and like vitamins. That's right. Yeah. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, you know, we hear about this all the time. This is really actually, this is great, man. Okay. Cause we hear about this all the time. Especially right now, you get these R three initiatives yeah. inside of hunting, and that's yeah. like retention, recruitment, and like reinvigoration. Mm-hmm. I think uh, or reengagement. And the largely the narrative around black people mm-hmm. is 
and, and I, I frankly, I find it paternalistic. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oftentimes, it's like, uh, you know, we're it's white people that are going to introduce or share the resource of the outdoors mm-hmm. with black people who just, yeah. you know, because that's like. So, that shows you that, like, societally, we've accepted this narrative that, like, these are things that black people don't do. Don't do, right. Right? Yeah. And so what's what I love about this and, like, meeting you and, you know, like, I kind of, I made this kind of semicircle in my family and mm-hmm. came back to something I mm-hmm. didn't even know had been part of my history. Right. Uh, is that you're, this, you're just, like, kind of the latest part of this, you know, mm-hmm. fairly unbroken. Yeah. Yeah, a stream of this. And I hope, man, you know, I was thinking on the drive up today, like about my seven-year-old daughter who, uh, you know, when I was seven, I had had totally different experiences because we were, I was raised very rural. Were you like running around with a 22 and a pocket oh, man. full of shells? I, you know, I, I tell people now, most people get really frightened by this, but I mean, I can remember some of the very earliest memories that I have, and I'm I'm sure I was maybe five or six or something, and there would be, you know, a shotgun behind the door, mm-hmm. and I'd say, somebody'd say, Alex, go bring me that shotgun. And that was my job, is to go grab the shotgun and take it to the adult. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from a, from a very, very young age. I can remember, again, some of the earliest memories that I have, man, are, you know, my dad and and uncles and extended family members working on, on, on our farm, you know, working the cows and out in the gardens and, uh, you know, uh, fishing and hunting. Like th- these are, I mean, again, this is, this is just what I know. You know what I mean? Like it's not, yes, it, it, it it's oftentimes very challenging for me when, um, when I have conversations with people about uh, my being in the outdoors as much or my experiences thereof, because, you know, it, it is sort of this very paternalistic narrative of how neat is that? You mean you are <laughs> and, and I mean, yeah, it, and look off paternalistic. Often well-meaning. Yes, yes, Often yes, of course. with yeah. good intentions. Yes. But still. But not, not necessarily aware that, you know, that thing you just said or the way you just said this thing or, you know, that 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 may actually sting. You know what I mm-hmm, mean? Mm-hmm. Um, or it may be problematic. And so, yeah. Um, man. So back in the 80s, um, our dad... And I, I can't remember. My brother might know the, the the year, but my dad joined a hunting club um, in the Mississippi Hill Country, and um, and it, and it was like the, a really vast piece of pride. Like they they hunted thousands of acres where the 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 hills flattened out into the delta, and so they they kind of hunted both, right? And um, to to this day, it's it's some of the best the best hunting land I, I would, you know, in, in the U.S., I would say. Hold um, on, man. Where's something's rubbing? Is it? Can you hear it? Yeah. I think it's – I think we're getting – we're just getting too animated, man. Okay, we got to yeah. bring it back. Yeah. Got it, got it. Um, when you say hill country, how far from the Mississippi would that be? Um, I'm talking about the river. Yeah, yeah. So where that hunting club was, I, I'd say maybe uh, – 
60 miles maybe 50 60 miles okay yeah um so everything between kind of when that started in the mississippi river is going to be delta delta which is like the inverse of my delta yeah. here in arkansas right right gotcha um so you know um that hunting club man and, and that opportunity that my brother and i had to sort of you know, uh, go out there and kind of grow up hunting on that place. What made that different than where our family was from is that the the, the game was just a little bit better there. You know what I mean? So we, we grew up in South Hines County, which is like sort of the Pine Hills, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, uh, now I'd say, you know, the game is uh, a little bit better because there's a lot of deer, there's a lot of, you know, you get a, you get a few ducks off the Pearl River. You get you know some you know some others you know a lot of small game, but you know uh, up in the hill country, you know there were just deer, lots of deer, and lots of ducks, and lots more turkeys and uh, quail. And, and these are all these are all different kinds of critters that you grew up going after. Oh man, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean. Uh, so I would say, you know, my foray was probably first. First was rabbit hunting, you know. Um, you know, when I when I was pretty young, they they let me uh, they let me uh, hunt with a hickory stick, uh, <laughs> just like throwing it. Yeah, throwing it at the rabbit. Yeah, yeah, which is a kind of surprisingly effective yeah. way. It is very, very, very effective. So so then you know deer because cause deer were kind of a big thing. But our dad has always been kind of like a small game hunter. You know, um, was it behind dogs? Yeah, yeah, they had beagles. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, my dad also uh, uh, loved to hunt uh, raccoon and possum and like you know a couple other things. But and there's a and I've talked about this before, but specifically with those two animals, mm-hmm. nocturnal animals, right. there is a huge and really very noble history. Yes, all you know, traced all the way back hundreds of years through enslavement, mm-hmm. with uh, you know people in bondage uh, hunting those animals, and largely because they hunted to supplement the larder mm-hmm. uh, after working full days on right. you know these right. plantations or yeah. whatever the yeah. you know uh, there were slaves in all sorts of industries, yeah. and it mm-hmm. wasn't just plantations, right. but. Uh, and this was a way that, you know, it was it could be beneficial to the to the slave owners because mm-hmm. it you know lessened their financial responsibility to provide food, but it it simultaneously was often this 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 kind of like taste of you know quote unquote freedom, mm-hmm. uh, a place to to just uh, to how do I want to say this? To to kind of uh, experience expertise in something, mm-hmm. and you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, on some of these plantations, uh, you know, that had kind of a, a sporting hunting culture, mm-hmm. like the the hounds men and the hounds keeper were enslaved people. They were the hunting guides. Uh, but anyway, so when we're talking about raccoons yeah. and possums, nowadays we associate both of those animals with like. Uh, roadkill and mm-hmm. eating garbage, mm-hmm. but these are one; these are native species. Yes. 
super fascinating, especially if you get mm-hmm. to like a possum mm-hmm. and like it being the only North American marsupial, mm-hmm. uh, how many ticks it eats, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was also a source of sustenance, mm-hmm. you know, like both uh, belly filling and soul filling mm-hmm. way for hundreds of hundreds of years. Right. And then you grow up seeing your father uh, have this relationship with that mm-hmm. as well, which mm-hmm. is, you know, when we were talking about this kind of reemergence or reimagining of a black uh, association with this agrarian lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm so struck by the fact that, uh, it, you know, and in some ways envious of the, of the fact that you're not, you're not having to be brought back to it, yeah. that you were raised in it. Yeah. And yeah. so again, sorry, I'm going off of these tangents. Yeah, no, 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 I get it. You grew up, it. you grew up doing I that. I feel very fortunate, you know, um, I feel very, man, I, you know, I feel so very fortunate that I am as connected in that way, you know, um, two generations past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you actually, a conversation we had recently helped me to realize something else that I had never really thought about. We were talking about barbecue. Yeah. And I think I showed you a picture of my dad, of our, our dad's mm-hmm, old, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pit that he built. And um, we were talking about it being direct heat, and um, yeah, and the, and the, we could do this the yeah, same thing could, with possums. <laughs> we could do the same thing, yeah. with direct heat barbecue but, yeah. and these pits, right? And these pit masters, because and all because that growing up, man, that's all that we knew. I yeah. didn't realize. The thing is, man, I really didn't see smoke, you know, or somebody being more intentional about cooking with smoke mm-hmm. until. Man, it had to be, I had to be like 17 or so. Yeah. You know, 17, 18 maybe. Um, and, and you know what, man? You're, so, again, you're talking about a cooking method yeah. that is incredibly physical. You know, at its most base, it's mm. digging a hole, yes. a pit in the ground, right? Which, which I, I've seen our family do that. Yeah, make a fire. You know, uh, up until maybe about 10 years ago, they would uh, dig a pit. Dig a pit. And put a hog in there. Yeah. Make it, like, create your own charcoal yeah. by burning wood down. It's like, so where you're from, what wood would be used? They use a lot of oak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Post oak? Or? Yeah. No, probably red oak, white okay. oak. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, yeah. They, they used a ton, you know, most of so, so they're using yeah. oak. Yeah. And then you're doing, you're doing a hog over those coals, mm-hmm. which is going to do a couple of things. One, when done... For a long, slow time, mm-hmm. uh, it'll take you from having this kind of gummy consistency to the mm-hmm. skin to this really crispy, kind of like glass-shatteringly crispy yeah. skin that uh, can either be in different places, do it differently. But some people like pull it off, chop it up, mix it back in the meat. Yeah. Some places will take it off, eat it as a side. Some places will put it back on a sandwich mm-hmm. or something. Uh What's also really cool about that direct heat method is that it's the the fat dripping off of that pig mm-hmm. is hitting those coals and vaporizing, mm-hmm. and it's imbuing a specific flavor that's very different yes. than like the offset smoke. Yeah. yeah. But again, so I went on a tangent. But yeah. you're, but we're talking about these relationships with the woods and mm-hmm. the earth, and mm-hmm. I mean we can be kind of precious about it and talk about right. it that way. But you know, like that's something I saw with my father is. Like, my dad was a school teacher, but because of where he came from, like, the way that my father showed love mm-hmm. was, like, 
physically working, yeah. working in the yard, whatever. Yeah. And so, so our dad was a school teacher as well. I didn't. What did yeah. he teach? Yeah, he taught. He was a, a shop teacher, so industrial. They call it industrial technology. Awesome, man. So he could build anything. Yeah. Um, and he loved to. He loved to work with his hands. Um, and I and I'm told I was told by him that uh, our grandfather was was much the same way, and um, our great grandfather was what was called a gandy dancer and that was he worked on the railroad okay right he was one of those guys that used to move and lay track mm-hmm. um he was a really big man i've only seen photos of him he died i think two years before i was born but um john henry he was he was a huge massive man um, i'm sure my brother probably knew him but i didn't i didn't get a chance to know him and um you know um so there, yeah, yeah. So you know, we could, we could, I think, go on and on and on and on about, uh, you know, that you know the connection to, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, working out outdoors in that way. But yeah, I, you know, I so our dad built this, you know, this this pit, and um, you know, he he did not. I mean, I, I I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That you know, he he probably uh, never envisioned uh, cooking with uh, smoke in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they did create coals by burning wood, but they they just didn't necessarily use as much smoke in yeah. the, you know in in, the, in that intentional way. And so, um, but yeah, man. I mean, so you helped me. So get back to my point. You helped me sort of realize. Um, all of, all of these experiences that I had, you know, coming of age and growing up and, um, things that I didn't necessarily realize were really sort of important, intrinsic, uh, contributions that African, that African-American culture offered the world by and large. Like, okay, so Holmes County, Mississippi, uh, place does, does not get enough credit, but when I was growing up, and so 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 when I was growing up, there was a blues man that I would see often, all the time. Turns out he was a really, into this day, is a really important blues man because he's one of the last of the old school uh, blues artists. His name his name was Lonnie Pitchford. Okay. Okay. Um, also in Holmes County, the burial site of a guy named Elmore James. Okay, Elmore James was what many people refer to him as the king of the slide guitar, right? And that's this style that really sort of revamped rock and roll music. Um you know, you know I was told when we were growing up that that BB King actually lived in Lexington, Mississippi where we where we grew up and that many others, you know, sort of th- that this was kind of a a hub of the uh of the hill country and the delta, yeah. you know. And, um, I'm trying to think who else, like R.L. Burnside, he's Hill Country. R.L. Burnside's Hill Country, man. Yeah. So that's that's the North Hill Country up in, you know, um, yeah, that, that whole, like, man, don't get me talking about that, but that, you know, Otha Turner and, you know, the fife and drum tradition, you mm-hmm. know, that, that music is just so important to me, you know. And see, we're um, sitting here, man. We're sitting five, probably five. Houses that way mm-hmm. would be Louis Jordan's oh, house. Man, I grew up listening to that. Dude, that's where he, I mean, right, and they tore Are the you house. Serious? They tore the house down. I'll show it to you. Wow. If you go up the road here and you bust a left on yes. 17, that's the Rosetta Tharp Highway. I will never forget that my grandmother, 
our grandmother had a cassette tape that had Louis Jordan and I, I stole her cassette <laughs> at an early age and would listen to that thing over and over and over and over again because I loved it. Man. Yeah, he had bangers, man. Yeah, man. Beans and cornbread. He was, My yes, man. That. Yes, man. Yes, yes. So, um, <laughs> awesome. That's awesome, man. So, yeah, you know, I, um, yeah, man, I, I, I feel very fortunate. Even, even now, I mean, I can look at, I can, I could point out probably five or six people whom I could say, man, this person, I know this person, and you should talk to them because their experience was really fascinating. They grew up here and they did it. Um, you know, it, I, I would say that I don't I don't see my brother and I's experiences necessarily being unique from people that we know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember once. Uh, I, w- I was pretty young, but I was with my dad, and we were uh, we were near uh, Thornton, Mississippi, which is also in the Delta, but it's it's kind of closer over to the hill country, you know, in, in that area. And um, our dad loved to fish over there, and um, I was very young, and I saw some guys out in a you know a a, a creek. And I, I was just like, I had no idea what they were doing. I asked, I said, what are they doing? You know, I asked my dad, why, why are they out there in that water like that, right? And he said, he said, they're hand grabbing, you know. And I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Describe it. Right. So uh, these, these were African-American men, and they were swimming around in this creek searching for catfish. To, to grab with their hands to bring them out of the water and th- to throw them in their cooler, right? Are they just so? Is it like noodling or noodling? They- That's exactly what it is. And but the, the fascinating thing, uh, and I, I again I remember you know conversations with my dad where he t- he insisted that this was something that was very prevalent among African Americans at a time. Um. I can't necessarily say that I saw a lot of that. I I, I think I maybe witnessed it a, a, a few times, and then to my hand grab, hand grab, yeah. And then back, you know, when I got to college at Mississippi State, I met a bunch of guys who did. And so, um, but I do remember a handful of times where um, there there were, you know, African American men who. You know, I, I saw in waters throughout the delta or the hills or somewhere, and they were, you know, they they were they were hand grabbing for catfish, and um, you know, and I and I've had numerous conversations with with a, pe- a few people that were sort of of my dad's generation, where they they all sort of sort of echoed that this was very common among African Americans at a time, and. And this is this was like a subsistence level activity. Yes, 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 absolutely. They they went out and they hand grabbed catfish to feed their families, you know. And which I mean, if you think about that, man, that's that's perhaps like one of the most human activities mm-hmm. you can engage in, like mm-hmm. just going out with your wit in your hands. And like literally pulling food out of the wild. I think I think that's one of the wildest things to this day. I mean, I tried it maybe once or twice while while in college. I was a little younger and a little crazier back then. And 
Um, man, I, I think a lot of people don't realize how uh, can I, I, I how ballsy that is, right? Can I say ballsy? You can say ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people don't realize how ballsy that is. You get a hold like, of a snapping turtle. Yes, man. of course. You can get your hand snapped off, yeah. or you can run into a poisonous snake, or yeah. you can step on something. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that could happen to you. you can uh, alligators, right? Yeah. I mean, a whole lot of things could happen. So. Yeah, man. It, uh, I hand grabbing is r- really badass, man. You know, it's it's one of those things where you're like, okay, that, that dude, that, he, he angry. You leave that's a, a that's low. a real one. Yeah, yeah, you gotta leave him alone. <laughs> you know. Um, so so yeah, man. Um, well, yeah. hey, let me let me uh, let me steer the ship a little bit here mm-hmm. if I can because we're. I mean, we've been talking for an hour. Oh crap! Okay, uh, what time? Okay. <laughs> but, and I know you've got to get on the road because you yeah. and your brother, like I said, are, I don't know if I said it or not, but you guys are on your way to Nebraska to mule deer, huh? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then I'll be, what was it, 9.30? I'll be, I'll be waking up in five hours to go speckle belly hunting again. Okay. So, but, uh, and so obviously, man, we'll have to do this again because mm-hmm. we've just been going off on these tangents and it's, yeah. <laughs> and I love it because it's, it's like you get excited about something yeah. and you're talking about this and, and. I think that someone listening to this can, could uh, could see the common thread through everything we're talking about. But, uh, you know, kind of this, it's kind of like a, a concluding question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this, this steps back from, or maybe it doesn't step back from some of this conversation we've been having about like these, the historical relevancy of the past and how it interacts with the present and such. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the more I do these interviews, the more I talk to people, I've I've really kind of figured out that what this podcast is really ultimately supposed to be is an examination of craft, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I would say that craft to me is that intersection of thoughtfulness and working with your hands. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it can be different, be in different sides of the pendulum swing, but it, I feel like that's what craft is. It involves that tactile nature of stuff. So I feel like it could be just how you live, man. You know, like if you are somebody who lives close to a specific thing, mm-hmm. particularly living with a relationship close to the land, right, and to the natural world, um, that I feel like that is. It takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of uh patience and persistence and you know all those things and I, I feel like the people who are good at that definitely practice a craft. Yeah, you know, and that's so I think you might have actually just answered the question. I was gonna ask you where where you see the manifestation of craft in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um man yeah, I you know, that's a good question. So I you know, I would have to say I you know, I'd have to say currently it's my mother. Hmm. It's my mom because my dad was a very tough guy, right? But my mom had him beat and still does. Uh the most resilient <laughs> person that I've ever known. 
Um, and a person that just can make up in her mind that she wants to do something and nothing's going to stop her from doing that thing, you know? And, you know, I'll never forget. I don't even know if my brother actually knows this story, but I think I was eight, eight years old. We had, we had cows by this time. Um, several years prior to that, my dad had a herd of 60 to 80 cows that were, uh, they were mostly killed in the lightning strike. Oh, wow. Yeah, so one, one, it was raining real hard. One group got hit, lightning bounced off, hit the other group. My dad lost the majority of his herd. And so. And then had to figure out what to do. Had to try to rebuild. 30,000 so, right. pounds of right. dead cows. Right. So I'll never forget, it was a Saturday. And the cows that we did have had somehow gotten out of the fence. Mm-hmm. And. My mom, again, one of the toughest people I've ever met, like, period. She took it upon herself. I don't. I, I think my dad was somewhere hunting or something. I don't know where he was. It was a Saturday. And the cows had gotten out. My mom decided that she was going to go get these cows in. Why she decided on this, I have no idea. <laughs> and I was eight. There was somebody else. The cows had gotten on somebody else's property. And... They were hunting on this property mm-hmm. that we were on. And there were dogs barking. And we could hear the, the hounds. And my mom was the most resilient. Like, I knew she was afraid. I knew she was. what, But she just. Were they running deer dogs? They, I'm pretty sure they were. Yeah. And. Um, yeah. My mom just kind of. <laughs> she got in her mind that she was going to go do it. I can't even remember if we did. I'm pretty sure we got them in. You know. But I say I would I would say craft for her because crafting her you know by my definition and looking at her it's it's the act of resilience. It's of a person that can make up in her mind that she wants to do something, and she's gonna do it. You know, and I think if you're gonna be any, if you're gonna be decent at anything in this life whether it's something that somebody celebrates you for or something that you die and nobody even knows that you lived um most of us exhibit some sort of craft even if it's that we get up every day and we religiously not do anything (laughs) right but i can say that my mom has been a person who has lived the hell out of Focusing straight forward and getting something done, no matter how small or how large. And yeah, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> no, man, that's a that's a good yeah. place to end it. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll have to do this again. There's, I mean, we just we just jumped all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> we, and we just touched yeah. on the surface of quite yeah. a few uh, subjects. But uh, so Alex Harvey of Legacy Land Management. Yep. Uh, if people wanted to get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do that? Um, Instagram, all one word, Legacy Land MGMT. Uh, they can follow me. They can follow my business page on Facebook, Legacy Land Management LLC. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Alexius A Harvey, A L E X I S middle initial A H A R V E Y. Um. Email you could you could uh, you could email me at um, it is a Harvey 
at definemylegacy.com. A Harvey at definemylegacy.com. Yeah. All right. Well, Alex, man, uh, again, man, super glad that we finally got to meet each other in person. Yeah, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, man. Likewise. We could do this for hours and hours more, but yeah, we Absolutely. can't. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, man, look, safe travels. Thank you, man. And uh, yeah, excited to see what else uh, is going on with you down the line. Yeah, man. Likewise. I hope we link up many more times and hunt and hang out and everything else, man. Yep, it'll happen, man. Yep. All right. Thanks a bunch. Thank you, brother. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, a subscription and a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to is tremendously helpful. This podcast is produced by Jonathan Wilkins and Brian Sachs, and the title music is provided by Dr. Bionic, a fantastic band out of Cincinnati, Ohio. If you're interested in coming down to Arkansas, we've still got a few spots left on a couple of hunts left this waterfowl season. You can find more information about that at blackduckrevival.com, or you can keep up with me and follow what I'm doing by following on Instagram, just at Black Duck Revival. Again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.